Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be debunking fallacies. Take a look at nearly any book on critical thinking and you'll come across a list of fallacies. Ad hominem, argument from ignorance, the naturalistic fallacy, appeal to authority. Informal fallacies like these are invoked very often in the skeptic community and elsewhere. The problem is that many of these fallacies closely resemble good lines of reasoning. Just because an argument can superficially be labeled fallacious doesn't actually mean it's a bad argument. Over-reliance on fallacy lists fosters shallow criticism, distracts from the substance of an issue, and doesn't even accomplish the ostensible purpose of demarcating good and bad reasoning. Fallacy, in its most basic sense, just means mistake in reasoning. Clearly there's no problem with identifying mistakes in reasoning but assessing arguments is not always easy. Many have nevertheless tried to come up with shorthand lists of fallacies that reliably separate the wheat from the chaff. This has not gone so well. It doesn't seem as if there is any tidy master list of irrational moves that we can simply cross-check with a given argument and conclusively settle the matter. While there's no issue to be taken with fallacy in the basic sense, we obviously want to identify mistakes in reasoning, There are a number of problems with the mode of thinking one can find on display wherever fallacy lists are waved around. So do the arguments made out in the wild really accord with these abstract blueprints? Or is it the case, as some philosophers have argued, that fallacy theory is a simplistic, facile approach to assessing arguments? Discriminating between good and bad reasoning is no easy task, And these taxonomies of fallacies basically function as shortcuts for thinking. Certain abstract schemes of argumentation are deemed haram, and if an argument plausibly fits into one of these fallacious argumentation schemes, then we're done. Your interlocutor committed one of these fallacies, at least superficially. Case closed. On the difficult question of how to discriminate between good and bad forms of reasoning, Martin Boudry, Fabio Paglieri, and Massimo Pialucci in the journal Argumentation, write, quote, This is a problem of demarcation, akin to the one between science and pseudoscience, which has kept philosophers of science busy ever since Karl Popper proposed his falsifiability criterion as a way of demarcating genuine science. In both cases, the initial attraction of pursuing such a demarcation project is to find some shortcut for dismissing bad theories or arguments sparing us the effort of analyzing each and every specimen. Philosophers of science have given up on this silver bullet approach to demarcation. In argumentation theory, too, identifying fallacies has turned out to be more complicated than initially hoped for. Almost every known type of fallacy, both formal and informal, is closely related to forms of reasoning that are acceptable moves in a debate. In spite of this increased sophistication, The quest for silver bullets still seems to be part and parcel of the taxonomies of fallacies. End quote. It would be convenient to have a handy list of fallacy blueprints 
which we could use to identify bad reasoning totally abstracted away from the specific content and dialectical context. Sadly, the real world doesn't seem to conform to these hopes. As much as this might scandalize members of the online skeptic community, fallacies don't really matter as much as they seem to think. Even if an argument does plausibly sound like it commits something listed on yourfallacyis.com, the argument still might not be a bad one. As Michael Humer notes in his book, Knowledge, Reality, and Value, A Mostly Common Sense Guide to Philosophy, quote, I think the fallacy lists lure people into thinking that some perfectly good inferences are wrong, because these perfectly good inferences sound like what the fallacy definitions are talking about. End quote. Martin Boudry expands on this problem of false positives, describing a fallacy fork, which is a dilemma of sorts for those who approach every issue with their hand hovering just above the fallacy buzzer at all moments. Quote, Every fallacy in the traditional taxonomy runs into a destructive dilemma that I call the fallacy fork. Either it hardly ever occurs in real life, or it's not actually fallacious. Arguments that are deemed fallacious according to the standard approach are always closely related to arguments that, in many contexts, are perfectly reasonable. Formally, the good and bad ones are indistinguishable. No argumentation scheme can succeed in capturing the difference, separating the wheat from the chaff. And Boudry illustrates the dilemma with post hoc ergo propter hoc. Quote, Not even the most superstitious person believes that correlation automatically implies causation, or that any succession of two events, A and B, implies that A caused B. There are just too many things going on in the world, and not enough causal connections to account for them. In its clear-cut deductive guise, the post hoc ergo propter hoc inference is a fallacy, to be sure but hardly anyone makes it in real life. This is the first prong of the fallacy fork. So what about the kind of post hoc arguments that people do use in real life? As it turns out, many of those are not obviously mistaken. It all depends on the context. Imagine you eat some mushrooms you picked in the forest. Half an hour later, you feel nauseated, so you put two and two together. Oh, that must have been the mushrooms. Are you committing a fallacy? not as long as your inference is merely inductive and probabilistic. Intuitively, your inference depends on the following reasonable assumptions. 1. Some mushrooms are toxic. 2. It's easy for a layperson like you to mistake a poisonous mushroom for a healthy one. 3. Nausea is typically a symptom of food intoxication. And 4. You don't usually feel nauseated. End quote. Inferring that your nausea is the product of wild mushrooms you ate 30 minutes prior sounds a lot like the fallacy mentioned above, yet it's a perfectly reasonable inference to make. If we define our fallacies strictly enough that they're always fallacious, then they're incredibly rare. If we define them less strictly so as to capture real-world inferences, they're no longer bad inferences and should not be regarded as fallacious. Inferring a connection between dropping your laptop and it not working so well afterwards is not an irrational inference, even though it sounds a lot like mistaking correlation for causation. Another example. Genuine ad homonyms are rare. How often do we see arguments or ideas rejected on the basis of unambiguously irrelevant information about the party advancing them? The example case of an ad hominem on yourfallacies.com is the following. 
After Sally presents an eloquent and compelling case for a more equitable taxation system, Sam asks the audience whether we should believe anything from a woman who isn't married, was once arrested, and smells a bit weird. End quote. How often does anything like that happen? False positives, however, are very common. There's nothing fallacious about bringing up relevant negative information about the party involved. For example, that a media outlet has a history of lying is not irrelevant negative information. Additionally, lobbing insults is sometimes mistaken as an ad hominem argument. Insulting someone is not a fallacy. Rejecting ideas and arguments on the basis of irrelevant negative information about the party advancing them is genuinely fallacious, but it's just not that common. Your argument is bad because you have terrible fashion sense. Far more common is an appeal to relevant information about the party advancing the idea, or just good old-fashioned insults. I actually have a logic textbook that dismisses all consideration of material interests as an ad hominem fallacy. Taking this advice would cause you to lead a quite confused existence. Oh gee, I guess all that scientific research from the tobacco business that shows smoking doesn't cause cancer is genuine. I mean, it'd be completely fallacious to treat that research with skepticism because of their material interests at stake. Not everyone is arguing in good faith, and even many who are approaching things in good faith are being elevated and promoted by those who aren't. Fringe perspectives are often given far more than their fair share of airtime for that reason. And I don't want to be misunderstood, just because something is fringe doesn't mean it's wrong. Of course, you'd want to show why those ideas are wrong, and keep an open mind just in case they aren't wrong, but you're going to be taken for a ride if you deem it irrational to ever take into account who is making the argument. That sounds like an ad hominem fallacy, but you're crazy if you don't do that sometimes. Sometimes you should take into account who is making the argument. You'll be worse off if you can't say, you've got interests at stake here, that's why you're elevating those scientists or those economists, or what have you. Though I'm not saying Party X has interests at stake, case closed. I'm only saying that it's not illegitimate to take those interests into account. In fact, it would be pretty irrational to not take them into account. You'd be significantly worse at navigating the world and getting to the truth of the matter. Hey, why did all those oil companies cover up their knowledge of climate change for decades? Is it for some kind of scientific reason? Why do so many rich people financially support economically right-wing figures and outlets? Why aren't there more billionaires supporting economically left-wing figures and outlets? Probably just because the ideas are better. Why is the ownership and management of Amazon and Starbucks so ferociously opposing unionization efforts right now? Well, fortunately for us, Amazon has provided a helpful informational video providing some arguments and evidence that unions are bad. I wonder why they're doing that. Well, one thing's for sure, it's certainly not because of their material interests. That would be a fallacious fucking argument. Th that was in my logic textbook. Any consideration of quote-unquote material interests, their term, is an ad hominem fallacy. And then they used rich people supporting tax cuts as an example. So when I say that many good lines of reasoning can plausibly be labeled fallacious, I'm not just talking about, like, YouTube commenters or something. This whole way of doing things, I think, just makes people stop thinking. 
this whole approach of just hitting the fallacy buzzer every 10 seconds in a conversation. I mean, obviously it doesn't lead to very productive discussions, but a deeper problem is that it just stops you from thinking. It stops you from really examining the substance of the case at hand. It's not that I have a fully fleshed out positive alternative. I mean, I have my own ideas, but I don't think they need to be adopted by everyone. But I do think that everyone should be a lot less trigger happy with accusing others of fallacies. For one, the inference they're making might not actually be a bad inference. Even if you're not crazy for thinking you see a fallacy there, it distracts from the substance of a discussion. It just generates more heat than light. Casually hitting the fallacy buzzer without putting much thought into it can lull people into thinking they've debunked an argument when they've done no such thing. It's easy to mislabel something as fallacious, especially since members of the fallacy brigade don't seem very worried about false positives. This bad habit stops people from thinking and conveniently makes the world a lot simpler. So this is from Michael Humer's book, Knowledge, Reality, and Value, A Mostly Common Sense Guide to Philosophy. For those listening on the podcast feed, you can also watch the video on YouTube. This next section was recorded on video unscripted, in case it sounds a little different from the rest of the episode. So as I said, I'm going to be reading from Michael Humer's book, Knowledge, Reality, and Value. This is chapter four on critical thinking and fallacies. So he lists off some traditional fallacies like affirming the consequent, appeal to authority, ad hominem, classic, argument from ignorance, argument from popularity, straw man, begging the question, false dilemma or false dichotomy, the genetic fallacy, to quoque, and, of course, post hoc ergo propter hoc, because B follows A, A must cause B. So he's also critical of these fallacy lists, and um, let's go through a couple examples. Students who learn the ad hominem fallacy are liable to draw the lesson that one should never reject an idea or argument because of who says it. But in fact, negative information about an individual is often very relevant to whether you should believe what they say. Example, you see a television ad for clean coal. The ad contains some evidence and arguments for the claim that your country should rely more on clean coal for its energy needs. Now suppose you find out that this ad was produced by a coal company that would stand to profit if people accept the ad's message. The particular company in question is an especially immoral one that has been in trouble with the law on several occasions for safety and environmental violations. Now, how should you treat this information? Ignore it because the bad traits of the company are irrelevant to the truth of its message? That might be what you would think after reading about the ad hominem fallacy in your critical thinking book. But of course, that would be wrong. The bias in the immoral qualities of the company make it very likely that the ad is going to be misleading or outright wrong. If the ad makers are any good at their job, you, without extensive expertise in the area, probably wouldn't be able to identify exactly how it's misleading. Therefore, you should apply a heavy skepticism to the ad and all of its content. In this case, you would be rejecting ideas and arguments because of the immorality of the party putting them forward. This sounds like exactly what people are calling the ad hominem fallacy. But it's not fallacious, it's smart. End quote. 
So the first prong of the fork is that if we're going to be strict about it, very few people actually commit this fallacy. The other prong of the fork, or the other horn of the dilemma, if you like, is that if we're not going to be strict about it, then it's no longer clear that this reasoning is actually fallacious. So that would be the case in the example that was just given about the clean coal company. You know, they have material interests at stake, they're an immoral company with a history of lying. That plausibly fits into this ad hominem structure. So that's basically the dilemma here. Either you're going to be strict about these definitions, which would mean the vast majority of cases are false positives, or you're not going to be strict about it, in which case it's no longer clear that this is actually bad reasoning. This might be a perfectly good inference that nonetheless plausibly fits into this fallacious structure. Which basically means that these fallacy lists are just kind of pointless. So let's go through a couple more examples. Ad populum. This is the fallacy of believing something because most people believe it. But what exactly is supposed to be wrong with that? Here are three interpretations. Maybe the idea is that most people believing P is irrelevant to whether P is true. In other words, if most people believe it, that doesn't mean it's more likely to be correct. Problem. This is obviously wrong. If most people believe something, that obviously does make it more likely to be correct than if most people don't believe it. If most of our beliefs weren't true, the human species would die out pretty much immediately. Sometimes people elaborate on this fallacy by citing examples of beliefs that were once widely held but were false. For example, that the sun orbits the earth. So let me now just mention a few typical examples of beliefs that are widely held. Number one, dogs exist. It is generally lighter in the daytime than at night. The sky is blue, not red, green, or yellow. There are more than three human beings in existence. Human beings commonly have beliefs and desires. <laughs> that one might be more controversial with a certain crowd. Putting your hand in a fire hurts. Six is more than two. The earth has existed for more than five minutes. When you drop rocks near the surface of the earth, they generally fall. No objects are completely red and simultaneously completely green. Once you get the hang of it, I'm sure you can extend that list for a long time. Now, which would you say there are more of? Widely held beliefs that are true? or ones that are false. If you don't think most of those items are true, there's something seriously wrong. Option two. Maybe the idea is just that most people believing P does not conclusively prove that P is true. That's true, of course, but it's also a frivolous point to make. Of course it isn't conclusive proof, so what? Who is expecting conclusive proof? You may as well complain that it hasn't been conclusively proved that the Earth orbits the Sun. And this is true, it's merely overwhelmingly likely that the Earth orbits the Sun. And thence conclude that modern astronomy rests on a fallacy. Option 3. Maybe the idea is simply that people often put too much weight on popular opinion. The fact that many people believe P is indeed evidence for P, but it's not as probative as people think. This is indeed very plausible in many cases. It's easy to overgeneralize this point, though. So bear in mind that people don't always overestimate the reliability of popular opinion. For instance, consider the examples of popular beliefs listed under one above. Those beliefs are just as reliable as people generally take them to be. So you're probably starting to uh, get the picture here. Gives more examples with appeal to authority, begging the question. 
So I think that I will uh, just recommend this book and I'll just read a little bit from the begging the question section because I think a lot of people need to hear that one. Quote, the concept of begging the question is often misused by philosophers, one of the few confusions that is distinctive of philosophers. The misuse comes about something like this. The philosopher starts with the idea that an argument begs the question and is therefore fallacious when someone who rejects the conclusion wouldn't or shouldn't or couldn't reasonably be expected to accept all of the premises. The philosopher then looks at some particular deductive argument. He notices that if you start by assuming the conclusion of the argument is false, you can deduce that one of the premises is false. Usually the philosopher identifies a specific premise that is least obvious and says that if the argument's conclusion is false, then that specific premise is false. He concludes that someone who rejected the argument's conclusion would also reject that premise. Therefore, to assert that premise is to beg the question. People who fall for this mistake fail to notice that it represents a rejection of all valid deductive reasoning. In a valid deductive argument, by definition, if all the premises are true, the conclusion must be true. If the conclusion is false, then one of the premises must be false. So if you start by assuming the conclusion is false, and the argument was valid, you can always deduce that at least one of the premises is false. So take the argument, Miley Cyrus is a person, all people are mortal, therefore Miley Cyrus is mortal. This could be said to beg the question because if you don't think Miley is mortal, then you should not accept the premise that all people are mortal. Given the obvious fact that Miley is a person, to assert that all people are mortal just assumes that Miley is mortal, or so you might claim. Presumably, it's false that all valid arguments are fallacious, so something went wrong there. The problem is the definition of begging the question. Bad definition. You beg the question when someone who rejected your conclusion would reject one of your premises. Better definition. You beg the question when the justification of one of the premises depends upon the justification of the conclusion. In the inference mentioned above, it's true that someone who insists that Miley is immortal would presumably also deny that all people are mortal. But it's false that the justification for all people are mortal must depend upon the justification for Miley is mortal. Rather, all people are mortal could be justified, say, by an inductive inference. So far, all people who have ever lived have died within 125 years of their birth. End quote. So, once again, I would like to recommend this book, Knowledge, Reality, and Value, A Mostly Common Sense Guide to Philosophy. I don't know if I just did anything illegal by just reading out large chunks of that book. <laughs> I mean, I did offer some commentary on it. So, anyway, Michael Humer, former guest of this channel. I plan on having him on again sometime. I hope he's fine with it. <laughs> so, once again, there's kind of a fork in the road presented here. Either you're really strict about these definitions, in which case almost no one actually makes these errors, or you kind of loosen the definition a little bit so as to include the way that people actually reason in real life, in which case they're not bad inferences. There are many arguments that plausibly fit in to this argumentative structure that's been deemed fallacious by many skeptics and subscribers to this kind of fallacy theory, I guess. And yet, the conclusion could be true, and the argument might be a perfectly good argument. Just because you've made an argument, and someone can plausibly respond to that argument by saying, hey, that sounds like this fallacy, it's not even clear that the inference that you made or the argument you made is a form of bad reasoning.
The stubborn plausibility of false positives is crucial here. A reasonable person could say, it sounds like you just committed the X fallacy. And I'd say, yeah, you're right. It does sound like I committed the X fallacy. And yet, the argument makes sense. Oh, I guess the argument wasn't really fallacious then. It seems like a fallacy was committed, but that was just a false positive. Yes, that's the point. It's way too easy to misfire, even if everyone involved is acting in good faith and isn't unreasonable. What would we do with, say, a metal detector that misfired as often as this? Would we keep it, or would we throw it away? My motivation here is to try to improve the quality of our discourse and debates, and to encourage better understanding of different positions and viewpoints. And in that spirit, a suggestion I have for improving the quality of our discourse is to lay off the fallacy accusations a bit. It would lead to a more fruitful search for knowledge and understanding. This whole approach, where one simply utters a fallacy from a list of fallacies, prevents us from going deeper. Playing fallacy gotcha might be a good strategy for generating views in a WWE-style YouTube debate, but it's not so good for generating more light than heat. It greatly oversimplifies the process of seeking truth, and it conveniently reduces the complex, messy, actual world into something more manageable. I know I'm being hard on skeptics and fallacy enthusiasts here, but that's because I used to do this. I'm being hard on myself. In earlier episodes of Counter-Apologetics, you can hear me invoking these fallacies and just dusting off my hands. But as time went on, this tapered off. The usefulness of this approach struck me as less and less credible, and talk about fallacies became quite rare. I started rolling my eyes when I heard them mentioned at all. Thankfully, philosophers like Boudry and Humor put into words what was so annoying and counterproductive about this mode of thinking. There's plenty to be said in defense of the use of fallacies. As I said at the outset, there's no issue with fallacy in the basic sense of mistake in reasoning. Cherry-picking data is fallacious. Insulting the party advancing an idea with irrelevant negative information in order to defeat their argument would indeed be fallacious. And if you apply the common fallacies carefully, with thought and deliberation, then they can be a useful tool. They can function as a conversation starter, rather than a conversation stopper. In other words, if the vast majority of fallacy enthusiasts start using them completely differently than they're using them now, they're clearly salvageable. But when most people misuse a tool, at what point do we start blaming the tool? If a new helicopter is manufactured, and 90% of them crash, Are we going to blame the individual operators each and every time? Are we going to point to the 10% that don't crash and say that there's no problem here? It's always pilot error? People just misuse the tool? In a discussion, if one were to accuse me of committing some informal logical fallacy, I'd be a lot more likely to try to explain that I'm not committing that fallacy, rather than, in that instance, cast doubt on fallacy theory as a whole. But it sure would be nice if we didn't have to deal with these setbacks in the first place. Shouldn't we try prevention, rather than endlessly playing bad fallacy whack-a-mole? Sure, many use them poorly, and that could theoretically be remedied. But they're so likely to use them wrong, it would be better to stigmatize the entire practice of invoking them. You shouldn't try to fly that helicopter unless you're an expert. 
Fallacies are also more likely to be misused if they're invoked on a whim. I mean, they're still likely to be misused even if they're not invoked on a whim, but it's comparatively more likely if they are. So take the helicopter analogy again. What if we discovered that the majority of these helicopters were flown by amateur pilots? And many seasoned pilots crashed as well, but it was mainly amateurs. And maybe at that point the conclusion we should draw is not that the new helicopter is faulty, but that for whatever reason it's harder to fly than other models. The problem with fallacies is that everyone thinks they understand them. There's no helicopter crash that occurs when a YouTube debater erroneously accuses their opponent of cherry-picking or fallaciously appealing to emotion, and there's no safe helicopter landing when one successfully identifies a genuine instance of post-hoc reasoning. I don't want to sound absolutist. Fallacies can be used well. I just think the current state leaves much to be desired. The problem of false positives is no small issue, but there are other reasons to want everyone to just chill out a bit with the casual invocation of fallacies. It almost always works as a conversation stopper, for one. It keeps the discussion at a maddeningly superficial level, and since it gives so many the false impression that an argument is no longer defensible, it leads to overconfidence and dogmatism. We need to just move past this point-scoring way of doing philosophy. It tends to produce uncharitable, shallow criticism. The sooner we can accuse someone of begging the question or the such-and-such fallacy, the better. It's boring, and it actively prevents us from thinking. In the words of Boudry, even bad ideas don't deserve bad criticism, and the hyper-focus on fallacies overwhelmingly yields bad criticism. This practice of constantly invoking logical fallacies is kind of pointless. Crying foul at every turn doesn't advance the conversation, it's an impediment to substantive dialogue. It's not even clear that one has done something irrational in apparently committing one of these fallacies. Fallacy labels are casually invoked in a way that distracts from the substance of an issue, yields shallow criticism, and doesn't even accomplish the ostensible purpose of demarcating good and bad reasoning. That's all I have for you today. And of course, thank you to the Hall of Fame patrons. Grim Frenzy, I Embrace the Void, Now Philosophers in Space, My Brain is Hurting, Richard Crossan, Henry W. Bartholomew, and John Buck. Thank you to the new patrons, the Hall of Fame patrons, and to all the people who support the show and keep it going. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter, where you can get early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you still want to alienate half your audience, you can follow our social media on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.